Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host, Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello, ladies, and welcome back to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. If you are new, welcome. So here we are seven months from when I started the second season of this podcast. If you have been following along, we have dived deeply into Jenny Allen's If Ministry and we are not quite through. As I am recording this, it is November, and this morning I was scrolling through Facebook and the promo clip for the 2023 If Gathering Conference is already out in the internet world. The more I have researched and looked at what is taught, which we will continue to look at in this podcast, the more I am sure that women need to avoid this ministry. So, ladies, this is where I am asking for your help. I will be sharing these episodes on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you believe that the content of these episodes are informative and accurately and thoroughly address the theological problems presented at IF, would you please share these episodes? I long to help other women learn discernment and deep theological truths. I know that an outsider looking at this podcast may say, I'm just one of those discernment shows only going after Jenny Allen and the IF gathering. But I truly believe that looking at the IF ministry in detail and presenting what they teach is not only going after the ministry, but exposing some of the very popular false teaching in the American church today. What IF teaches and the extra biblical tools and theories that they include lead women away from scripture, not towards it. That is why I'm taking a whole season to address IF. So please help spread the word by sharing. And if you do that, thank you. Now on to the regularly scheduled program. Last episode, we looked at one of IF Equip's study titled, Enjoying Jesus, 12 Experiences That Will Draw You Closer. These 12 experiences are just some of the common disciplines that are used by Christian mystics in the spiritual formation of believers. This study identified these Christian mystics as masters of the spiritual discipline. This is what we will be addressing in this and the next episode. We will be looking at Christian mysticism and the masters that if equip references in this study. But for a quick review, I want to remind you of the last TE episode where I reveal what uh, Jenny Allen and others teach about the purpose of spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines in their study are prayer, confession, meditation, study, fasting, Sabbath, seeking silence, solitude, simplicity, giving, service, and worship. Now, I want to make it very clear that the issue is not these practices or disciplines in themselves. 
I make an effort to do some of these things. Though, I will say that I have stud- as I have studied the supposed spiritual masters that if quotes in this study, I realize that what they mean by prayer, study, seeking silence, etc., are very different than how I practice them. For example, I seek out silence only to have a quiet, uninterrupted time to read the word, as I'm sure many other women do. But the Christian mystics urge silence and solitude to have a quiet, uninterrupted space so that we may exercise meditation by clearing out our mind to hear God and experience Him subjectively. We see this exact teaching in week 5, day 2, Seeking Silence, part 2 of the study, where they state, quote, Engaging in the spiritual discipline of silence both gives a Christian space to listen to God and a chance to practice skills of self-regulation with God, end quote. So what I tackled in the last episode were the claims if makes to what the purpose of spiritual disciplines are that they are, quote, access points to discover who God is because it allows us to use small steps to experience God in real ways. They, quote, help us establish rhythms of life that regularly remember the Lord. These practices create routine times in our daily lives in which we can reconnect with him and recall all that he is doing and has done for us, end quote. And that, quote, Generations of believers who have come before us have handed down these tried and true practices known as spiritual disciplines, and they, quote, point to these practices as a way to know God and enjoy Him, end quote. Now, I argue that this claim, that these practices, uh, that these practices are being the way to know God and bring us into intimacy with Him. I argue that this rejects clear teaching from Scripture that we are brought near to God through Christ's blood through the gospel, Ephesians two thirteen, that our conformity to Christ is by the power of the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us by His Word, John seventeen seventeen, and that Scripture is God's revealed Word about Himself by which we come to know his plan of salvation, and all that is needed for sanctification for those who are declared justified in Christ. It is because we believe that God condescended to reconcile us and bring us into intimacy with him through Christ's work that all we do flows from this faith. We are given new hearts and live by faith and walk in response to being intimate with God through Christ. This is very different from performing acts that bring us into intimacy and responding to a personal experience of God. The experience's fleeting and interpretation of them may change, while the promises and work of Christ are eternal, as he is always faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 Today, though, I want to address where these teachings come from, and that is what we know as mysticism. I think it's important to start here so you ladies can identify this type of teaching. I feel it's very important to learn about mysticism because it is the Christian flavor of the day. Next week, I will go into the spiritual masters that enjoying Jesus quotes to solidify their teaching on the spiritual disciplines. I want to look at what they teach so you can see the connection to what is presented in this episode. 
By the end of both of these episodes, you should be able to identify the false teaching of Christian mysticism and identify a Christian mystic. So, let's dive in. Let's talk about Christian mysticism. First, what is mysticism? Mysticism is the attempt of the human person to attain the ultimate reality of things and experience direct communication with the highest. Here's a clip from the Filio Notes YouTube channel, a channel dedicated to teaching philosophy. What is mysticism? Broadly construed, mysticism is the attempt of the human person to attain the ultimate reality of things and experience direct communion with the highest. Mysticism maintains the possibility of a relationship with God, not by means of revelation or the ordinary religious channels, but by introspection and meditation in conjunction with a purified life, culminating in the awareness that the individual partakes of the divine nature. Mysticism has been identified with pantheism by some authorities, and many pantheists have been mystics. However, mysticism is not tied to any particular philosophical or theological perspectives. It's also important to note that mysticism tends to differ from public religion, which emphasizes a worshipful submission to the deity and the ethical dimension of life. In fact, mysticism strains after the realization of a personal union with the divine source itself. Indeed, the mystic desires to be as close to God as possible, part of the divine essence itself, whereas the ordinary devotee of most religious systems merely desires to walk in God's way and obey his will. Okay. So notice what mysticism teaches specifically. Quote, that one can have a relationship with God not by means of revelation or by the ordinary rela- religious channels, but by introspection and meditation in conjunction with a purified life culminating in the awareness that the individual partakes of the divine nature. End quote. So right off the bat, we can see a rejection of Romans 1, a rejection of how sin causes one to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Any introspection, meditation, or even creation observance cannot lead one to know God or have a relationship with Him. One must acknowledge first that sin has so corrupted our nature that to try to understand, know, and find God through introspection leads us to a God who is made in our image. Again, contrary to what even Peter proclaims to the men of Athens, that being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, Acts 17.29. While we today, well, we in the Western world, do not form physical images to which we bow down and worship, we do form philosophical and theological ones. One derived from the introspection and imaginations of men. And it is these images that we worship. We will get into the God of the Christian mystic in a little bit. So now that we know what mysticism is, what is Christian mysticism and who is the Christian mystic? We will listen to another YouTuber by the name of John Adams, whose channel Discover Christian Mysticism teaches on and answers this very question. Now I'm going to play almost the whole video and we'll interject at certain parts because we need to look at what Mr. Adams says about certain things. 
so we can see if he understands certain biblical truths. And these are, what will he say about the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of sin, and the nature of salvation? The reason I emphasize this is because, remember, a mystic arrives at the eternal, or God, through introspection and meditation. This is the starting point. As you will hear in Mr. Adams' video, he will claim that Christian mysticism is a search for union with God through Jesus Christ. So let's listen in. Don't be scared of the word mysticism. The woo pseudo-spiritual nonsense that probably comes to mind might be popular right now, but it's a distorted image that has very little to do with the real thing. So let's cut through all the platitudes and the riddles and the whole super spiritual atmosphere. Straight talk. What is mysticism? And what is Christian mysticism? In any religion, mysticism is the search for a real personal experience of union with the divine. The personal experience of the divine transforms the mystic and makes her divine creating an intersection of the spirit world and the physical world in the soul, body, and life of the mystic. All right, so he makes it very clear that the goal of the mystic is to be in union with the divine, and this experience, this union with the divine, will make the mystic divine, or have God within. Christian mysticism is the search for union with God through Jesus Christ. To get there, well, that's the story of the whole Bible. All right, I have to interject here, because one of the ways deception comes into the church is to use Christian language, but have a different meaning. That's exactly what's going to happen here. He stated that, quote, Christian mysticism is a search for union with God through Jesus Christ, end quote. What they actually mean by this is what Dallas Willard teaches the putting on of the yoke of Christ. It means Christ is our example, that by living and uh, disciplining our body the way Christ did, we will become unified with God as Jesus was unified with God. You'll see that when he talks about Jesus's life in this video. Now, traditional biblical Christianity doesn't teach this. When we use the words through Christ in regards to our connection with God, it's in reference to his work, not as example for us to accomplish, but work he completed that accomplished reconciliation between God and us. It is a work outside of ourselves that is credited to us. The Christian mystic's definition of through Christ makes the disciplines and work of Christ a law that we must accomplish to be brought near to God. More than that, really, to expose the God within and commune with it. While the biblical Christian's definition has the disciplines and works of Christ imputed to us, a gift given to us from outside of us, as Luther called it, an alien righteousness. Now, notice the difference in what one's faith is placed in. Either it's on the finished work of Christ, the gospel, to bring us to God, or it's on our works, being like Christ and his works, that bring us to God. And that is why what you will hear from Mr. Adam is not a biblical gospel, but a works-righteous gospel. In the beginning, God creates. There is something, and it's very good. But like any good artist, God isn't done until God sees God looking back at God from what God has made. Okay, 
This is the Christian mystic's conception of God. Notice what he said that, quote, God was looking back at God from what God has made, end quote. He is plainly stating here a pantheistic teaching of God, the belief that God is in creation. Believing this leads to problems. Gary Dedo, from his article titled Avoiding the Pitfalls of Panentheism on the Grace Communion Seminary webpage, explains it like this. Quote, The story from Genesis on shows that the absolutely transcendent God who reigns infinitely over his creation has no problem being present to it and interacting with it. Theologians call this God's imminence. The God of Israel interacts freely with his creation and is in no way controlled or manipulated or contractually put under obligation by it. God is thus both transcendent over and imminent in, present to, his creation. Those who affirm a natural, automatic, panentheistic connection between God and creation confuse God's being present to things and even being involved with or in things, God's eminence, with those created things sharing in God's being, and so being divine or being identified with and naturally joined to God. The error of this panentheistic thinking is that its proponents end up either minimizing or neglecting God's transcendence over creation or giving creation its own natural transcendence like God's. With this mistaken approach, God and creation overlap in being, and creation is erroneously given a transcendence that is intrinsic to its very being, like that of God. But the biblical revelation is clear. God has no natural relationship, no given or fixed connection with his creation in the sense of creation sharing to some degree in the same kind of being as God. God has an entirely different kind of being, summed up in saying that he is uncreated, eternal, infinite, etc., than his creation, which is made, and thus finite, limited in many ways. Creation is entirely dependent on God for its very existence. God upholds everything in existence. Only God has existence in himself. Theologians refer to this as God's aseity. God is not dependent in any way on anyone or anything. Consequently, God's relationship with his creation comes by his action, by his will, not by necessity, and as the outcome of his decision that expresses his own character and purposes. Those thinking panentheistically speak as if by knowing created things, one is naturally also getting to know God because God is somehow in these things and identified with them. These teachers speak of the relationship between God and some aspect of creation in the way Jesus speaks exclusively of his unique relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Recall Jesus is saying, He who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. There we have true identity, Jesus, and he alone is Emmanuel, God with us. However, those thinking in a panentheistic way speak as if creation itself 
has a natural built-in mediatorial power to overcome our spiritual blindness and reveal God, end quote. As you can see, Christian mystics believe in a God with a different nature, a nature that resides in creation. That means a nature that resides in man, a nature of man that is not corrupted by sin, dead to spiritual things, but one that is merely lost and can find its way by connecting with its true self, the divine that resides within. Listen as Mr. Adams continues. That's where we come in. Genesis 1.27 says that God created us, male and female, in God's image. Human beings are God's image in that we're conscious creatures. We wonder and debate and write stories and build religions about where we came from and what it means to be human. It also means we're powerful creatures. Like God, we can reshape the natural world for our benefit. And our proper place in the natural order is to use those godlike abilities to participate in God's work, in the creation and protection and flourishing of life. But Genesis 3 tells us that very early on in the human story, something breaks. Our desire for more power than what we were given teaches us judgment, shame, and deep dissatisfaction. We're tricked by ambition and by the illusion of a fully godlike understanding, but when it doesn't work out, the only thing we really learn is to hate ourselves for what we're not. We become alienated from our divine source and our human purpose. Our spiritual consciousness short circuits. We're lost. And powerful creatures like us, when we're judgmental, ashamed, dissatisfied, and lost, when we hate ourselves, but are still ambitious, the result is nothing less than global disaster. It only takes the Bible seven chapters to chart our decline from the image of God, to banishment from paradise, to murder, the perversion of nature, to the worldwide destruction of the flood. So did you notice how he described our lostness? That our desire for more power than what we were given teaches us judgment, shame, and deep dissatisfaction that we are tricked by things such as ambition and the illusion of a godlike understanding. And when these things don't work out, we end up hating ourselves for what we are not. This is Mr. Adams' description of our sinful nature. Our problem is the desire for more power and that we are tricked by ambition, which only leads to hating ourselves. All of this leads to alienation from God and human purpose. This means, then, that the solution to evil in this world is to become unified with God and love ourselves for who we really are, loving the divine within. The rest of the Bible describes the world as we still know it today. Famine, war, slavery, rape, pollution, and death. But it also tells a courageous story of hope. In every age, in every human disaster, God is still with us, pointing to a future when heaven and earth will be reconciled, brought back together through human beings when nature will be restored to health, peace, and flourishing through healed people. The best part is that God doesn't promise a reconciliation through the efforts of the best, most ambitious, or most powerful of us. God promises to work healing and new life through the weakest, the smallest, the forgotten, the humble. The human appetite for power is what's killing the world. Human humility, love, and self-sacrifice animated by God's own power is what will save it. Salvation of the world, this means humanity, will come through humanity in union with the divine. This is an entirely different gospel. Now let me ask you ladies, 
who have been listening to this podcast at least since episode three of the season, do you guys see a connection between this gospel and the purpose of the IF ministry? Especially IF's mission statement on reclaiming discipleship as God's means to change the world? Now, connect the dots between this gospel, IF's mission statement, and IF equip study enjoying Jesus on the spiritual disciplines. Whether it's saving the world or changing the world, this is the purpose of the Christian mystic, and IF's idea of discipleship through Jesus Christ. Here's where you'll hear what I explained earlier about what they mean by through Jesus Christ. So the New Testament opens with God entering the world through the life of a lower middle class carpenter's son whose mother had a bit of a reputation. Humble beginnings to say the least, but in the life of this one man, the Spirit of God demonstrated what true humanity, what life as the image of God can actually look like. Jesus taught, fed, healed, and honored the poor. He forgave, loved, and accepted every kind of sinner. He liberated people from their emotional burdens, from their anxieties and their deepest wounds. He taught a way of life in harmony with God, in harmony with other people, and in harmony with the natural world. The writer of Hebrews calls him the exact imprint of God's very nature. So Jesus is what we were always meant to look like. Then, when Jesus didn't cave to ambitions of greatness, to the temptation to use power and violence, to fix a world broken by power and violence, we did what we always do with things we don't understand or that aren't like us. We killed him. But he rose from the dead and his teachings lived on in the lives of his followers. Jesus' resurrection showed the world that death is not the inevitable end, that willing self-sacrifice can and does give birth to reconciliation and new life. All right. I'm just going to let that last part sink in a bit. Quote, Jesus showed us that willing self-sacrifice can and will give birth to reconciliation and new life. End quote. So, reconciliation and new life is not through a work of God, through the death of Jesus Christ, as scripture states in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. P.S. The Christian mystic is doing just that, regarding Christ according to the flesh, looking to him as an example of a human in union with the divine. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, not through Christ's example, but literally through the person of Jesus himself, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Christian mystic has a different teaching on salvation, a salvation of works. But they grasp that Christians just 
don't live like Christ, and that is why the Christian mystic implements the spiritual disciplines. Jesus' first followers imitated him by sharing his life with the world. They told his story, but they also followed in his footsteps by setting tables all over the world for the poor, the outcast, the weak, the brokenhearted. In their lives, the life of Jesus lived on, and they called this the Holy Spirit. What Jesus taught, and more importantly, what he demonstrated himself, was that loving and being loved by God and loving your fellow creatures as you love yourself is the path to becoming truly human. Of course, that's easy to remember and it makes a great mission statement, but day to day, it's incredibly hard to do. Later generations of Christians spent a lot of time thinking about why it's so hard to be like Christ and love consistently. What they came up with after generations of soul searching was a deeper understanding of the complexity of the human creature. In each of us, countless appetites, instincts, strengths, and weaknesses all push and pull us in a hundred different directions every moment of every day. As the Apostle Paul writes, parts of us naturally want to be Christ-like, but we have so, so many other parts. What the early Christian nuns, monks, and mystics realized was that all of our internal forces need to be trained if they're ever going to align with the teachings and example of Jesus. So they develop practices that open the human soul to the work of the Holy Spirit, disciplines that wrestle our conflicted internal motivations into submission to the cross of Christ and the law of love. Why disciplines? Because the early mystics taught that in Christ, God became human to make human beings like God. But they also knew that God doesn't force this on us. God invites and leaves the response to the invitation up to us. The practices and disciplines that make us more like Christ, that teach us to consciously receive the love of God, consciously love God in return, and give of ourselves for the life of the world, these practices are a personal, intentional, involved response to God's work in Jesus Christ. A dedicated, committed, daily search for transforming union with the divine, or simply mysticism. A Christian mystic is someone who dedicates their life to imitating Christ, as they are able and as God calls them to, in their internal spirit and in their outward behavior. As mystics become more like Christ, they become more truly human, which mysteriously leads them to become more personally united with God. We're all still waiting for that cosmic reconciliation when all of nature will find the peace and harmony with God that it's crying out for. But the great healing can start right now, small and personal in each of us, as we learn to be like Christ and connect with the source of our lives. That is the path of Christian mysticism, the search for oneness with God through intentional oneness with Jesus Christ. Okay, so... Let me summarize all of this before we look at the problems with Christian mysticism that was promoted in If Equips Enjoying Jesus Study. I want to lay this groundwork for you before the next episode so you understand why promoting people who teach Christian mysticism is dangerous and can lead women down some very deceptive false teachings, even leading them to a different gospel. In essence, the Christian mystic believes that God's essence resides in all of creation, that within humanity resides the divine, but our problem is our desire for power, resulting in the hatred of ourselves for what we are not. The solution to our problem is to connect with the divine as Jesus did, live as Jesus did, and love as Jesus did. 
and the spiritual disciplines are the means by which we connect with the divine or God, and through these experiences, we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the will of God. Now, doesn't that last part sound familiar? Similar to what we heard in week one, day two's video, where we hear Jenny Yang state that the reason for practicing the disciplines is because we can't do the difficult things unless we empty ourselves to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So, let me present to you how Christian mysticism can affect a Christian woman's salvation and sanctification. First off, Christian mysticism and putting into practice the spiritual disciplines teaches you to look within and to find God through certain acts and subjective experiences. This leads one to reject what God really has revealed through his word. One will become more dependent on the disciplines, their own feelings and their experience, to learn how to walk and behave instead of scripture. The disciplines will become the tools one will use to equip them for righteousness and good works. Secondly, as one starts to believe in a panentheistic God that resides within and reveals and is revealed through experience, one will start to believe that God changes. As God is found within, our knowledge of God changes. And since that knowledge is not rooted in an objective book that remains true for all eternity, but is subjective, then one's experience of God can differ from another's experience of God. This is why, as you will see in the next episode, many Christian mystics believe there are many paths to God. Thirdly, since God is experienced differently by different people, this panentheistic God becomes androgynous, who is not only father but mother, and rejects the male pronouns used to describe God and therefore rejects the biblical teaching of headship and submission. This will directly affect a woman's view on marriage and motherhood, her church involvement, her idea of church polity and the pastorate, and basically all of her sanctification in these areas. Fourthly, since mysticism presupposes that man's nature is good, it will affect her view of repentance and her need for reconciliation to God. Instead of sin being an affront to a perfect being that is transcendent, apart, and holy, she will be led to believe that man's problem is that he, she just doesn't know that God resides within herself and needs only to connect through experience with the cosmic Christ to be made right or reconciled with God. We will look at this term, the cosmic Christ, in the next episode. Fifthly, for Christian mystics, spiritual formation becomes the saving, atoning work for the individual. Again, scripture is unnecessary to find God as anyone can receive the word of God through the spiritual disciplines. And as we experience him more and more, we will be spiritually formed, meaning our spirits will be made righteous as we are conformed to the Christ that resides in all of God's creation, just like Jesus did. This is the panentheistic gospel, which is a works righteous gospel. Six. As Christ becomes mere example and salvation comes through spiritual formation, one starts to believe their works are tied to the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines such as contemplative prayer, meditation, silence, solitude, service, simplicity are all the tools or means that God uses to bring you closer to the God within by separating you from the everyday mundane things and works. 
these mundane works will start to be seen as that which keeps you from God and can or will lead one to pull away from service to others and love to others or pull away from the world as we see many of these spiritual fathers and mothers have done in the past. Part of the problem with this idea that we have to train our bodies through spiritual discipline to follow Jesus' example is that it assumes that we know better than God on how to sanctify us and is by the flesh trying to conform ourselves to the image of Christ. When scripture says that it is God's work, it is God's discipline that accomplishes this, not ours. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans eight twenty nine to 30 See, it is all God's work. Now, Bob Dewey from his Critical Issues Commentary article titled The Dangers of Spiritual Formation and Spiritual Disciplines states it this way, quote, Spiritual disciplines are man-made, amorphous, and not revealed in the Bible. They assume that one is saved by grace and perfected by works. God's discipline is what he does sovereignly and providentially to bring each of us ultimately into the image of Christ. What is presumptuous about the spiritual disciplines approach is that the practitioner presumes to know what he or she needs when only God knows such things. The monk who takes a vow of chastity presumes to know that he's going to be more Christ-like, single, than married. The person who leaves civilization on a voluntary exile into solitude presumes to know that he will be more Christ-like exiled than interacting with others. This is the case no matter what activity we presume will make us more spiritual. The only exceptions are those things God has ordained for all Christians. We are never presumptuous to, in faith, avail ourselves of those practices that God has ordained. But this brings us back to means of grace, not spiritual disciplines." End quote. And just like Galatians 3, 3, Scripture says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, we see Scripture say, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Christ sanctified himself so he would be our righteousness. He disciplined his flesh and obeyed the law perfectly. We who are clothed in Christ are seen by God as righteous. And all the so-called spiritual disciplines that Jesus did we receive by faith in him. We do not have to sanctify or discipline ourselves to get closer to God. We are close to God through Jesus Christ, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians one thirty, And by 
faith in this, we walk in the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. See, spending time in silence and solitude does not put to death a lying tongue or keep us from coveting. Fasting to understand our dependence on God does not keep us from hatred in our heart. Simplicity, giving, and service do not keep us from lusting in our hearts. The scriptures talk about sanctification in three ways, in past, present, and future tenses. Positional sanctification, as stated in 1 Corinthians 1.30, our position in Christ by faith is true regardless how spiritual we think or how we feel. Progressive sanctification, the working of the Spirit through us, outwardly displays the holiness that we have in Christ. This is our faith lived out in works, for faith without works is dead. And then there is our future sanctification, or the completed sanctification, which is our glorification, when God raises us up with him in new bodies, complete and perfect as Christ is, 1 John 3, 2-3. All of it is God's work. Finally, I think the most detrimental to a woman who chooses to go down this path is that Christian mysticism reduces Jesus to a mere human in connection with the cosmic Christ. He eventually becomes one's example and not one's spotless sacrifice for sins. Christian mysticism rejects all that Christ accomplished through his death. Here's how. Since they teach that one can come to God through meditation, solitude, prayer, silence, etc., a propitiation for sins is not needed. A sacrifice is not needed to satisfy the wrath of God so we would be brought near to him. We need only reject fleshly desires and seek God's kingdom within us and live in it. It rejects that Jesus' perfect righteousness is given to us simply by faith. Instead, Jesus merely showed us God's righteousness and how we can live by it. Instead, the Christian mystics, as you will see in the next episode, teach a works righteousness that one must walk in to be in the kingdom of God. A woman who doesn't understand that she is declared justified, declared righteous because of her faith, but must connect herself with the divine to live righteously, will work to experience God and work to hear God so she can know the will of God for her life. This is why spiritual disciplines fits right in with the purpose-driven gospel. But a woman who understands that we are declared righteous by our faith in the work of Jesus Christ lives in that faith and serves in that righteousness. The motivation is different. We don't serve to reproduce God's righteousness in ourselves, but serve because, through Christ, we are righteous and reconciled to God, who now is our Father. His law, His testimonies, His precepts are our delight, because He is our delight. These are written down and not subjectively received. Christ died for His people to reconcile them to God, bring them near to God, and make them holy like God. But God is only found through Jesus Christ, not through subjective inner impressions or subjective experiences labeled as God. Let's look at some scripture to support what I'm saying here. Scripture teaches that our knowledge of Christ's work on the cross brings us to live holy lives. 1 Peter 1, 10-19 states, Concerning this salvation, 
The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So let's look at another passage, 2 Corinthians six sixteen to seven one. I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So our knowledge of being ransomed by Christ's precious blood causes us to conduct ourselves with fear on this side of eternity, to be holy as he is holy, with the promise to ultimately be holy in, with imperishable bodies when Christ returns, our great hope. Spiritual disciplines are merely a light form of asceticism. They are actions that one is placing their faith in to help make them holy. If equips faith is placed in them to fill us with the Spirit to do the hard things, basically to fill us with the Spirit to be holy, the enjoying Jesus study 
teaches you to believe in these actions as the means of bringing you close to God so you can live holy lives. Scripture teaches you to believe in Christ's actions, his life, death, resurrection, and the ascension as the means of bringing you faith, justification, righteousness, reconciliation, relationship, sanctification, and glorification. And since we believe and have come to know this, we will walk by the Holy Spirit in that knowledge and pursue holiness and gratitude to the finished work of God through Christ Jesus. So ladies, I hope I've exposed the false teaching and dangers of Christian mysticism, and I pray that this episode has helped you in being able to identify the beliefs behind it. And this way, when we get into talking about people that are quoted in the If Equips Enjoying Jesus study, when I expose to you what they teach, you will be able to see the underlying presuppositions and beliefs in it. And as I show you what they teach, you will see why it's just so deceptive and really, I believe, evil to promote these teachings in this study. It deeply saddens my heart. Ladies, if you have come across teachings like these, I pray you see the truth of God's word and the beauty of the real gospel, the true gospel that really saves God's people, the gospel that reconciles his people through the finished work of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Spotless Lamb of God, whose blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. If you are trusting in this Savior, if you trust in His work, you are declared justified, reconciled to God, and can call Him Father. His Spirit is within you and sanctifies you through the Scriptures. Live by faith in this. Therefore go and be holy as He is holy. I pray you are in His Word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.